Okay, it's time for an opener. And I don't care if this gives it away. I'm just going to read the headline. Murder suspect. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) No, I have to. I'm going to do it. Murder suspect claims victim summoned Bigfoot to kill him. (laughs) Wait, murder victim? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Murder suspect claims victim summoned Bigfoot to kill him. Yeah. No, that's murder suspect. Which I'm 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 confused what a murder suspect is. I'm reading it, right? Okay, let's talk about it. Yeah. Ada, Oklahoma. Of course it's in Oklahoma. <laughs> Oklahoma, not Oklahoma. An Oklahoma man is facing a murder charge after he allegedly killed his friend. Deputies said he claimed the victim had summoned Bigfoot to go after and kill him. The Pontotoc County Sheriff's Department responded to a call about an alleged killing Saturday afternoon, just outside of the city limits of Ada, Oklahoma. Deputies arrived at the scene to 53-year-old suspect Larry Sanders admitting to a family member that he had killed his friend Jimmy Knighton. Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation said in a press release that Sanders and Knighton had been noodle- noodling? Or hand fishing? <laughs> No, they were noodling. Noodling is how you catch catfish. You stick your fist into a catfish hole and they bite on and you just pull your fist out. Okay. It's a thing. It's crazy. That is crazy. I'm glad that you're here to say you know what noodling is. It's with a fist. Just so you are on the same page. So they're doing this in the river when a confrontation ensued. Sanders allegedly struck and strangled Knighton. As part of the investigation, the sheriff's department was able to uncover a motive. Quote, appeared to be under the influence of something. So his statement was that Mr. Knighton had summoned Bigfoot to come and kill him. And that's why he had to kill Mr. Knighton. End quote, Sheriff John Christian said. Search agencies and the sheriff's department weren't able to locate the victim's body until Sunday afternoon. Investigators are now working to uncover proof of the alleged crime. Quote, it always makes it easier. You still have to prove all the elements of the crime and what the suspect is telling you. You have to prove that that's actually what happened, Christian said. End quote. Sanders is charged with first degree murder. The sheriff says the death penalty is the harshest punishment the prosecution could push for in this case. And that's that. This was published. Published by WMTVNBC15.com. So this sounds like a story that we're actually going to get an update on. Yeah, I was just looking at when this was published. There might be an update. It was published July 12, 2022. So let's <laughs> add that to the list of things we're watching. Okay. By popular demand, people are going to want to know what happened to this. All I was um, picturing is kind of like when two siblings are playing and one of them accidentally gets hurt and they're like, I'm I'm gonna go tell dad and the other one's like no you can't go tell dad <laughs> but this one it was but this is sasquatch to kill you it really does seem that way doesn't it especially that they're out noodling yeah and i had to share that with you and i'm not sure just because i saw noodling for the first time they had to use it in a sentence oh yeah you can go look up on youtube noodling techniques or how to noodle catfish then you'll find videos of people like you stick your fist in the hole and they bite onto the fist and then you just pull them out of their hole people die that way all the time actually because catfish can get huge what yeah okay i guess i'm just gonna have to believe you on this one because oh right here that is fucked up okay i could have gone my whole life without normal yeah also you get scars from it Sorry, now I'm Googling died noodling. (laughs) Noodling accidents. Noodling deaths per year. Noodling gone wrong. (laughs) Okay, you know what, with that, we probably should get started with the episode. (laughs) 
<laughs> if we must. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, doling out fringe topics in bite-sized, roughly hour-long portions. Some people just take long, bigger bites than others. We are your easily digested podcast hosts, Taylor and Chelsea, and here today we are talking about lost continents and possibly racism. And let's face it, because we're talking about lost continents, yes we are, at some point. That's what we call foreshadowing. That's usually what comes up in all the lost continents we've looked at. Heavy racism. Heavy racism. Heavy. But what continents could we possibly be talking about? Surely they must cover Atlantis now. No, because Atlantis isn't a fringe topic. Everybody knows about Atlantis. But you know what people don't know about? The lost continent of Mu. What's that? (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. That's a good episode. (laughs) End of episode. (laughs) I just said the word. (laughs) Today, we are going to talk about the lost continent of Mu. To give you just a brief overview, because it doesn't actually come up for a long way down into my episode. Turns out I really just talk about two really weird guys for a while, which at the end of the day, is that not what this podcast is all about? Mm -hmm. Just to give you an idea, what is Mu? Well, the lost continent of Mu is the theory that there was a continent in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that encompassed basically all the way from Hawaii down to Australia. Massive continent that was right there. That would make sense. Depending on who you're talking to, some people believe Lemuria and Mu are the exact same continent. Right. And that is why I actually had to check with you to make sure we didn't cover this already. But, oh man, we did not cover this because I found some very interesting stories. Oh, good. Because I don't remember you asking me that. (laughs) Well, I almost changed my topic because it seems like we already covered this. So is there a continent there? Because it seems like with so many islands, there might be. You know what? We'll get into it at the end. I think I gave you enough to to at least kind of understand what Mu is. Mm -hmm. That now I can actually get into the history of the people who talk about Mu and bring it forth as a proposed lost continent. Okay, I need a setup. So to start this off, we can go no further back than a man by the name of Augustus Le Plongeon. Le Plongeon was born on the island of Jersey on May 4th, 1825. And at 19, he sailed to South America. And sorry, this guy just has such an interesting history that you've got to start with his entire life. Cool. Where's Jersey? Jersey is an island just off of Britain. It's one of the um, tax havens of the UK. Okay, he was born in a tax haven. Sweet. I don't know if it was a tax haven at the time, but now it is. Okay. At 19, he started sailing to South America, and his boat got destroyed. It was shipwrecked, and he ended up off the coast of Chile. What would you do if you got shipwrecked off the coast of Chile? What would I do? Um, Yeah, at the age of 19. Probably assimilate, I think. Okay, and I guess that's technically what he did. Okay, good. I'm on the right track. From there, he settles in Valparaiso, and he taught mathematics drawing and languages at a local college keeping in mind he's 19 at the time so i don't know how he got that damn job but he assimilated Uh, like well if you come in and you're confident enough in your skills they don't know what you're talking about but they know you must know something no and and he seems like a man with his wherewithal so he should have been constantly doing math up until that point in his life so to teach it it isn't that it makes sense if you're not like timid and like you you know you come in you know what you're talking about what you're doing that does not sound like Augustus Le Plongeon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Okay, cool. He's dignified now. Yeah, so it uh, it seems like he does that for about four years. And in 1949, he leaves Chile for the golden dream of San Francisco during the California gold rush. Oh, okay. So he goes there and he works as a surveyor for a while. You know, the 49ers, 1849, in fact, when all the gold rushers went there. Okay. But instead of actually becoming a gold rusher, he works as a surveyor, which actually probably gives you steadier work and gets you paid pretty well. He also apprentices to become a doctor of medicine during that time. So this is a guy who really can't pick one topic to continue forward with. Interesting. Okay. One of his accomplishments as a surveyor included drawing a plan for the layout of the town of Marysville, California and the Central Valley in 1851. Augustus was paid for his services as a surveyor with land deeds and he would sell these lands. He profited from the sale of these plots and his income funded basically the rest of his life and all archaeological expeditions that he may go on after this. Oh, right. I forgot we were talking about Moo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's actually the whole point of talking about okay. this. Okay. But okay. no, outside of that, the guy has an interesting life eh? he does yeah that is that was a wild ride okay yeah Quick so one. Good. He, he becomes a very wealthy man. Le Plongeon travels back to England and he starts seeing demonstrations of a photographic process at the Great Exhibition. I forgot to look up what the Great Exhibition is, but this is basically when photography is taking the world by storm. And he thinks, man, I got to get in on this. So he stays in England to study photography under William Fox Talbot, who kind of is one of the pioneers in Britain of photography. And he meets his wife, Alice, that he ends up marrying. She is 25 years younger than him but they come to an arrangement and she comes from a family her dad is very well known in the photography world and he wants to be a pioneer in archaeology so they kind of marry their strengths together and they set off in archaeology augustus wanted to test these methods in tropical climates so he spent time traveling to saint thomas virgin islands as well as mexico australia china and the pacific islands and he returned to san francisco to open a daguerreotype which is basically where you get portraits done. A daguerreotype portrait studio on Clay Street. And in 1862, he travels to Lima, Peru and opened another photography studio and quote, electrohydropathic medical clinic based on early form wow. of an alternative medicine. I did not look into electrohydropathic medicine at all, but like fringe medicine. It has to be with a name like that. I don't think anybody practices electrohydropathic medicine <laughs> anymore. So I, I think it is now debunked fringe medicine but he goes down to peru and then he starts to get into mayan archaeology and this is where he really comes to fame i took up most of this next part from a website called mexico unexplained i think they summed it up very well so this is what they say about the rest of his life here from the time he set foot in chichen itza augustus le plongeon sought to prove diffusion theories and to make the case that maya civilization was not only old but it was the oldest on earth and the mother of many other world civilizations le plongeon's interpretation of what he saw and found at chichen itza has been called by some authors as, quote, inventive, end quote. <laughs> the culture provided, quote, a blank slate, end quote, and could fill with it whatever he wanted, sometimes bending the physical archaeological records accordingly. One of Le Plongeon's first inventive interpretations of what he saw at Chichen Itza had to do with a Maya rope design he saw as part of a temple's frontal carvings. He declared that the Maya had an ancient telegraph system that spanned the globe and connected it to other civilizations and colonies it had throughout the world. So the Maya, I believe it's actually the Aztecs, didn't have a written 
written language, they used knots in ropes to convey information. So that's likely what was being represented there. And he said, no, it's clearly dots and dashes that they're showing. They had a telegraph system around the world. The Mayans were so <laughs> advanced. Okay. <laughs> One of the biggest licenses he took with what he was uncovering was when he discovered a series of wall carvings on El Castillo, also now known as the Temple of Kukulkin. Not only did Le Plongeon claim that one of the portraits of the warriors on the temple looked like him, he claimed that he was the reincarnation of that warrior and that he had actually lived in Chichen Itza oh, no. in its heyday as one of its rulers. He communicated his beliefs or assertions to the Maya crew working with him and they believed him. <laughs> No, he's no, he's paying their bill, so they're like, sure, oh, sure. Okay. So long as you're gonna keep oh, paying me. David Wilcock took notes from this guy. He did have a strange knack for finding important artifacts. Everyone would agree, and so okay. maybe some thought there was truth to what he was saying. He and his wife Alice would pioneer a new pseudo scientific field while in Mexico, that of quote psychic archaeology end quote. They came upon major artifacts they claimed by using a unique blend of supposed psychic abilities, intuition, and channeling spirits to help them with their finds. In London, Alice Le Plongeon had been very involved in seances, mesmerism, and studying the occult. Hmm. As they wrote about their findings and published them in newspapers and magazines in America, the work of the Plongeons gained the attention of then New York-based Russian mystic and occultist uh, Madame Helena uh, Blavatsky. It's HPB! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's back! Blavatsky took some of the Le Plongeon Mexican research and incorporated it into her theosophical movement. In her public writings, Blavatsky hailed Augustus and Alice Le Plongeon as pioneers and as she put it, quote, metaphysical archaeology, end quote. <laughs> While being celebrated among the mystical circles in New York and London, the La Plongeons had less and less support from mainstream academic and antiquarian publications and institutions. While they seemed to have a special skill for finding impressive artifacts, the La Plongeons were the first to do major excavations at sites such as Chichen Itza and Uxmal. And because of this, there were plenty of things for them to find at every turn. Both Augustus and Alice kept up the mystical and occult angle and continued crafting their tenuous prehistory of the new world in spite of serious objections and doubts from those seeking a more mainstream view of antiquity. A big turning point in the research of the La Plongeons occurred when Augustus found, by psychic means of course, mm -hmm. a large reclining stone figure seven meters underground, which he called a Chakmul, a name meaning, quote, red or great jaguar, pa, end quote, in Yucatec Maya. He immediately declared that Chakmul had been a ruler of Chichen Itza, and he had seen this ruler depicted throughout the ruins on stone carvings and in murals. La Plongeon tried to spirit the statue out of Mexico to get it to the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial Exposition in the United States, but was thwarted by government officials who apprehended the Chacmool and took it to Mexico City. There it was exhibited as one of the most important finds of the century and part of the Mexican patrimony that would never leave the country. Although La Plajon's plan was snuffed out, he continued to weave the ancient story of the mythical ruler Chacmool, who was also known as Prince Ko. Chacmool was the brother of Prince Ak, the evil lord of Uxmal. Prince Ak defeated Chacmool in mortal combat, not the video game I 
I'm assuming, because this would be way in the past. But of course, they had modern technology back then, so maybe it was Mortal Kombat. Who knows? And Chukmul's widow came to rule the kingdom as Queen Mu. The territory of Chichen Itza and its surroundings became known as the Kingdom of Mu. Queen Mu was then forced to marry her evil brother-in-law, Prince Ak, at which point she fled to Egypt where she was revered as the goddess Isis. She also brought with her a complex civilization with its origins in Mexico. One of Queen Mu's last acts in the Americas, Le Plongeon explained, was to commission a stone carving dedicated to her husband in the form of Chakmul statue. With a further elaboration of the ancient Maya, ancient Egypt connection, came an even more fantastic claim regarding Queen Mu. She had returned to the Yucatan 115 generations later, reincarnated as none other than Alice Le Plongeon, <laughs> his wife. <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> While accepted by people such as the members of Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Society, very few serious scholars took the work of La Plongeon seriously after Queen Mu Ice's Alice connection. <laughs> this didn't stop the La Plongeons and their discoveries and the interpretations kept coming. In addition to claiming the connection to Egypt through Isis, Augustus La Plongeon claimed to have discovered stone tablets in Chichen Itza showing details of ancient Mayan rites of Freemasonry. As a high-ranking Freemason himself, La Plongeon was eager to point out Masonic signs and symbols in the ruins throughout the Yucatan. He claimed that the triangular arches, numbers of temple steps, and carved figures seeming to wear Masonic aprons indicated that the ancient Mexicans had knowledge of Freemasonry's sacred mysteries and that these Masonic rites and mysteries originated in the New World, not the Old. It was Queen Mu as Isis who transferred this arcane knowledge to Egypt. This assertion was a point of pride for Augustus Le Plongeon because it seemed to give more legitimacy to American Freemason lodges. Americans could thus shed some of its inferiority complex if it could claim such ancient roots to Freemasonry, which was very popular in the United States at the end of the 19th century. This guy's insane. Like, he stumbled into a fort I mean, it started okay, but now it's just like, I can't imagine going on an archaeology dig and being like, that guy that was in charge, you see in that picture, that was me. You guys all believe me, right? By the way, if you don't, you're fired. Yeah. I can't oh, imagine. Oh, see. See. That even crossing <laughs> my mind. <laughs> like, that's just bizarre. So... Okay. One thing this guy was not good at, outside of archaeology, of course, was naming <laughs> books. Le Plongeon wrote several it? books on the subjects of, above that I just discussed. The first he wrote in 1880, and it was called, okay, get ready for this. <laughs> okay. Gonna take a while. Vestiges of the Mayas, or facts tending to prove that communications and intimate relations must have existed in very remote times between the inhabitants of Maya and those of Asia and Africa. Okay, that's an awful name. Yeah. <laughs> it's not catchy at all. Nope. <laughs> I would just pass that by. Yeah. God, I, I would start and I'm like, There's, this is too much. Yeah. I can't even read this. <laughs> that one's just numbers. 1984. Look at that. That's easy. I'm reading that one. Yeah. His wow. next book in 1886... Okay, oh get ready for this. Okay. <laughs> Sacred mysteries among the Mayas and the Quiches, 11,500 years ago. Not the end, just the colon. Their relation to the sacred mysteries of Egypt, Greece, Chaldea, and India. <laughs> Semicolon. Or Freemasonry in times of interior to the Temple of Solomon. End of title. He had so many opportunities to just stop it. <laughs> just end it, yeah. 
By the way, that first title, at least, he did learn to break it up a little bit. No colons or semicolons. Second title, colon and semicolon. So getting better. <laughs> oh, it sounds like you found it enthralling, though. You know what? I bet nobody got past the title and they just said, oh, yeah, it was great. And then when yeah. you talk about those things, they just agreed because they didn't actually hear what he said. That's a very good theory. I would probably go along with that. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> this guy learned something in the next decade because in 1896, he comes out with his last book titled Queen Mu and the Egyptian Sphinx. And that's it. Ah, that's it. Oh, my God. Yeah. He must have taken some advice from someone he trusted. Or he died writing it. Somebody else is like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we just got his, yeah, his body just didn't have it in him to continue yeah. going, so he just died. Because to be fair, he's 71 years old in that last book, too. And sorry, he lives for 12 more years after that. <laughs> okay, so... He lives to the ripe old age of 83. So I didn't happen to mention a mysterious island. Well, that comes up a little bit, but it's more so the Queen Moo that, or Princess Moo queen Mu that really is where this kind of comes from but the mythical idea of the land of Mu first appears in the works of british american antiquarian augustus le plongeon after his investigation of the maya ruins in the yucatan he claimed that he had translated the first copies of the popol vuh the sacred book of the Quiche, from the ancient mayan using spanish he claimed the civilization of the Yucatan was older than those of Greece and Egypt and told the story of an even older continent. Le Plongeon got the name Mu from Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbon, who in 1864 also mistranslated what he was then calling the Troano Codex, now called the Madrid Codex, using the Landa alphabet. Brasseur believed that a word which he read as Mu referred to a land that had been submerged by a catastrophe. La Plongeon identified this lost land with Atlantis and following Ignatius Donnelly in Atlantis, the antediluvian world in 1882, identified it as a continent that once existed in the Atlantic Ocean. So La Plongeon originally, and I saw it a little bit contradicting, but I'm pretty sure this is the way that's correct. La Plongeon believed that Mu was a continent that existed in the Atlantic Ocean where Atlantis would be. It's kind of an interchangeable name. And that from there, Atlantis was gone. They went to the new world and then went back to the old world. And that's kind of how everything diffused from there. Okay. And here's a direct quote from La Plongeon. In our journey westward across the Atlantic, we shall pass in sight of that spot where once existed the pride and life of the ocean, the land of Mu, which at the epoch that we have been considering had not yet been visited by the wrath of human, that lord of volcanic fires to whose fury it afterwards fell a victim. The description of that land given to Solon by Sonkis, priest of Sais, its destruction by earthquakes and submergence, recorded by Plato in his Timaeus have been told and retold so many times that it is useless to encumber these pages with a repetition of it. La Plongeon claimed that the civilization of ancient Egypt was founded by Queen Mu, a refugee of the land's demise. Other refugees supposedly fled to Central America and became the Maya. So it is a little confusing about what he said, but that kind of is the gist and where the original people first talked about the land of huh. as a lost continent. Not sure where I thought it would have shown up first, but wasn't expect. Well, maybe I was expecting this. To be perfectly honest, I actually thought that this was a lost continent that people in Asia believed existed or like China, Japan. I did not expect it to first come up from like Mayan translations. No, no. But it's sounding about right from the origins. I mean, they're, they all start pretty eccentric. Most of them. Some of them are pretty old. And that brings us to our next eccentric. At this point, for the most part, the La Plongeons are near the end of their lives. So that that's kind of where they're looking to move kind of ends. 
and somebody else takes up the mantle. His name is James Churchward. And where most of the common age beliefs in Moo come from, uh, uh, most of it comes from this guy. So we're going to cover him a little bit in his backstory. It's nowhere near as exciting as Augustus Laplongeon. So we're just going to cover it in more vague detail. So Churchward, born in Britain, he then moves to Southeast Asia, becoming a tea planter in Sri Lanka. He immigrates to the US in the 1890s. And in Churchward's biography entitled My Friend Churchy and His Sunken Continent, he was said to have discussed Moo with Augustus Laplongeon and his wife in the 1890s. So he apparently was actually quite close with the Laplongeons. He also is a very wealthy man. He owns a few patents. Like I was reading the timeline of his life and he has like eight to 12 patents on different train technologies which are huge in the late 1800s, like yeah, uh, no early 1900s. So he is a well-off man. And he starts writing all the books that he ends up writing later in his life. So he's 75. I believe he's born in the 1850s. In 1926, he writes The Lost Continent of Mu, The Motherland of Men. In 1931, The Children of Mu. In 1933, The Sacred Symbols of Mu. 1934, Cosmic Forces of Mu. And two more books, the second book of The Cosmic Forces of Mu in 1935. I mean, they're straight to the point. Oh, no. And sorry, that, that is the last book he wrote. Second book of the Cosmic Forces of Mo. And I just want to take this excerpt. This is from his book, The Lost Continent. Of, and it's basically, it's the start of the first chapter. And to give you an idea of what he actually believes about Mu, I, I couldn't find any better way than to just read it from his first book. Okay. And how we came across this knowledge. Chapter one, the Garden of Eden was not in Asia, but on a now sunken continent in the Pacific Ocean. The biblical story of creation, the epic of the seven days and seven nights came first not from the peoples of the Nile or the Euphrates Valley, but from this now submerged continent, Mu, the motherland of man. These assertions can be proved by the complex records I discovered upon long forgotten sacred tablets in India, together with records from other countries. They tell of the strange country of 64 million inhabitants who 50,000 years ago had developed a civilization superior in many respects to our own. They described, among other things, the creation of man in the mysterious land of Mu. By comparing this writing with records of other ancient civilizations as revealed in written documents, prehistoric ruins, and geological phenomena, I found that all these centers of civilization had drawn their culture from a common source, Mu. We may therefore be sure that the biblical story of the creation, as we know it today, evolved from the impressive account gathered from other ancient tablets which relate to the history of Mu. History 500 centuries old. The manner in which this original story of the creation came to light forms a tale that takes us back more than 50 years. It was a famine time in India. I was assisting in relief work, the high priest of a college temple. Although I did not know it at first, he was exceedingly interested in archaeology and the records of the ancients, and had a greater knowledge of those subjects than any other living man. When he saw one day that I was trying to decipher a peculiar bas relief, he took an interest in me that brought about one of the truest friendships I have ever known. He showed me how to solve the puzzle of those peculiar inscriptions and offered to give me lessons which would fit me for still more difficult work. For more than two years, I studied diligently a dead language my priestly friend believed to be the original tongue of mankind. He informed me that his language was understood by only two other high priests in India. A great difficulty arose from the fact that many of the apparently simple inscriptions had hidden meanings which had been designed especially for the Holy Brothers, the Nikals, a priestly brotherhood sent from the motherland to the colonies to teach the sacred writings, religion, and the sciences. One day, being in a talkative mood, he told me there were a number of ancient tablets in the secret archives of the temple. What they consisted of, he did not know, for he had seen only the chests containing them, 
Although he was in position to examine the writings, he had never done so as these were sacred records not to be touched. Day after day, I attempted to discover some method by which I could attain access to the hidden treasures. But my friend, although extremely curious, was adamant in his refusal to let me see them. Quote, my son, end quote, he would say, a touch of sadness in his voice. I would that I could satisfy your desire, but that may not be. They are sacred relics must not be taken out of their containers. I dare not grant your wish. But you think they may not be packed properly and may break and crumble in their boxes, I urged. We should at least look at them to see if they are safe. But this argument was of no avail. Six months passed, curiosity or anxiety about their condition had won the contest over my priestly friend. For one evening on the table in front of him, two of the ancient tablets were lying on a cloth. I examined with curiosity the long hidden tablets. They were apparently of sunburnt clay and extremely dusty. With great care, I cleaned them and then set to work deciphering the characters that were in the same dead language I had seen studying with my friend. Fortune was with me that evening for these two precious forms of clay revealed facts of such import, we both realized that here indeed were the genuine records of Mu. The history, however, broke off abruptly at a most interesting point at the bottom of the second tablet. Not even the high priest could restrain his curiosity to see the rest. He said, it is impossible for us to leave off here, my son. I shall get the next tablet out tomorrow. Fortunately, the next tablet he procured were not of the same series, but had to do with an entirely different subject. And in order to find the consecutive tablets, all had to be brought out. It was well, for many of the tablets had been so badly packed that they were broken. These were restored with cement. When I repacked them, I wrapped these tablets in tissue paper and cotton wool. My son, said the priest, I feel that a sacred warning was sent to me through your voice to safeguard the relics. Months of intense concentration in translating the tablets followed, but the reward justified the effort. The writing described in detail the creation of the earth and of man and the place where he first appeared, Mu, Realizing that I had unearthed secrets of great importance in the elucidation of that internal problem, man, I sought the other lost tablets, but without success. I carried letters of introduction to high priests of temples throughout India, but in every instance I was received with coldness and suspicion. I have traced this same story from Mu to India, where colonizers from the vanished continent had settled, from India into Egypt, from Egypt to the Temple of Sinai, where Moses copied it, and from Moses to the faulty translations of Ezra 800 years later. The plausibility of this will be apparent even to those who have not studied the subject carefully when they see the close resemblance between the story of the creation as we know it and the tradition that originated in the movie. That's the end of the quote from the book. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's my comment. Any questions? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. So I, I just want to make a few notes here and it is something okay. that many of his critiquers say. Yeah. Did you notice how he described the priest he was talking to? Not particularly. Yeah. As if he didn't give a shit about the priest who was talking to him or giving even bothered to give him <laughs> okay, a name okay. so that anybody else could back up what he was saying. Okay, no, now that you mention it, um, no. Maybe his that's good friend, was not his notable. great friend that he was able to befriend, he got so close to that he said, I'm going to share this dead language that literally only two other people in the world know because it is so secret. Yeah. I'm not even going to bother to name this priest. Why would you? <laughs> No logical reason. Nor did he name where he was in India or in other places. He also says he's in Tibet, but he never bothers to claim where these tablets were. Maybe he thinks it gives him more credibility. Less to question. I don't know. Probably. Yeah. And you know what? Like this, this guy doesn't want to get in trouble because he shared like forbidden knowledge with him. Yeah. Yeah. He's protecting him. Yeah. Doesn't want to get him in trouble with the rest of the world. No. 
Why would you want to? Exactly. And another weird one, he ends up bringing up the Bible. Yes, he did. Like, oh yeah, this is all just the Bible. Yeah, it came up multiple times. He's also told at a later point that, oh yeah, Mu had a monotheistic religion, which had four rules. God is one, everything came from him and will return to him. The body and soul are separate. The body dies and the soul doesn't while they are being separated. The soul is born in different bodies to reach perfection. The souls which reach the perfection return to God and merge with him. In other words, it is roughly on par with most New Age bullshit that comes out at the time. And still comes out. It's very... God shows up even... Jesus shows up even in places where you wouldn't think Jesus would even be a known thing. The next thing that does come up, this is in the intro... So this is just something I wanted to bring up. All matters of science in this work are based on the translations of two sets of ancient tablets. Nikal tablets, which I discovered in India many years ago, and a large collection of stone tablets, over 2,500, recently discovered by William Niven in Mexico. Both sets had the same origin, for both sets are extracts from the sacred inspired writings of Mu. The Nikal tablets, written with the Naga symbols and characters, and legends say, were written in the motherland and first brought to Burma and then to India. That's a direct quote from his book. James Churchward, his great-grandson is actually alive, and he talks about Mu based on what his great-grandfather wrote. Oh my god. He'll come up later. But he specifically interviewed, it was an hour-long interview on his podcast. He has a podcast. I don't think he does it anymore, but he had a podcast, I should say. He interviewed a professor by the name of, and sorry, I just need to look it up because I was listening to it this morning, and it is very important for this. Dr. (laughs) Jeb Card, and hilariously enough, from the university University of Miami in Ohio, which I'm guessing is near the Little Miami River or Lil Miami River. Oh, that is pertinent information. (laughs) But anyhow, he was asking him specifically about these 2,500 tablets that William Niven found in Mexico. And he said, oh, yeah. Actually, the University of Miami has a couple of them. And I'm fairly certain it's not impossible, but I'm pretty sure they're fake. And he goes into it and says, basically, there are a few things that make him believe that. First off, in Latin America, if you're hiring locals to find things, they like to fake things that they find (laughs) so that you'll just buy them off them. Or if you're leasing their land to find things, they want you to find things, so they'll fake things for you to find. A whole lot of faking going on. And it's the fact that only he has ever found things like this. And he said, like, even if you find something unique, generally we will find other things that are associated to it or have the same cultural identifiers on them as within the area. There are other people digging in the exact same areas as William Nevin. They never find the exact same things. Only William Nevin ever finds these particular tablets, 2,500 of them, that are all completely different than anything ever found in Mexico outside of Okay, so they're for sure fake. Yeah. As a professor by the name of Jeb Card at the University of Miami says, it was actually a very interesting podcast. We'll get into Jack later. That's Churchward's son. And then the second half, I didn't bring up in the first little excerpt from his story but James Churchward talks about the Wager Empire and how it was actually a part of Mu. The Wager Empire would be the part of the continents that didn't sink the part of the colonies of Mu. And they would be the parts that were left behind once Mu sank. Well, who are the Wagers? The only place I know that term from, Chelsea, have you ever heard that term? I don't think I have. Okay, and it might just be how I'm pronouncing it too. The place I've heard it from are the Weiger people of Western China who are being heavily brutalized right now, put into concentration camps more or less, or indoctrination camps. Oh yeah, in Western China. U-I-G-H-U-R. 
Weiger Camps China. Okay. It's in Xinjiang province, for, I believe. That's for looking at later. Oh, this is the same spelling for the people you're talking about right now. Yes. And it's because they actually ah. technically draw their heritage from this group because there, it was technically, there is a Weiger Empire. It existed in the seventh century. It spanned a great distance. It was basically like the Silk Road, everything that encompassed the Silk Road would oh, be the okay. Weiger Empire. Okay. And it did actually stretch into parts of Europe, but he has yeah. a different definition of it. Um, although he never specifically really talked about it, I did find on his great grandson's webpage, he put a kind of an excerpt for the Weiger people. And this is what he has. Hans Stefan Santensen wrote and published a book in 1970 entitled Understanding Moo that attempts to explain the theories of Jane's churchward. And one chapter in it is the Weigers and is reproduced here. And this is right from that. Churchward describes the great Weiger empire as the largest and most important colonial empire belonging to Moo, the empire of the sun. Quote, next to Moo herself, the Weiger empire was the largest empire the world has ever known end quote the eastern boundary of the Weiger empire was the pacific ocean the western boundary was about where moscow now stands with settlements extending through central europe to the atlantic the southern boundary cut through what is now northern persia india and present-day north vietnam and this is kind of why i wanted to talk about this this next paragraph the history of the Weigers can be said to be the history of the Aryan races, for all the true Aryan races descended from the Weiger forefathers. The Weigers formed chains of settlements across Central Europe in tertiary times. After the empire was destroyed by the great magnetic cataclysm and the raising of the mountains, the survivors and their descendants once more formed settlements in Europe. This was during the Pleistocene time. The Slavs, the Teutons, the Celts, Irish, Bretons, and Basques are all descended from Weiger stock. The Bretons, Basques, and genuine and Irish are the descendants of those who came to Europe in tertiary times, descendants of those who survived the raising of the mountains. Legends all through the East tell how the whole of Central Asia, including the Himalayas, was at one time a flat cultivated land of fertile fields, forests, lakes, and rivers, with magnificently constructed roads and highway connecting the various cities and towns with each other. These were well-built cities, huge temples and public institutions, elaborate private houses and palaces of the rulers. Today, the land is a desert. You have to dig 50 feet down through a stratum of boulder, gravel, and sand before you reach the ruins of Karakota. But elsewhere in the Gobi Desert, where the water did not wash away all the soil to bare rocks, you can see the dried up beds of rivers, canals, and lakes that existed before the disaster. The Wagers, who appear to have been like the Quetzals of a light complexion with milk-white skin, with blue eyes and light hair, predominate in the north were the first colonists from Moo. Aryans are like, are we referring to that as like the made up race that HPB was always talking about? No, we would be talking about it as like how the Nazis would define Aryans as like the perfect human, blonde hair, blue eyes. So tall, it's made up. Strong. They're saying that these are descendants of Aryans and this is made up. I don't know if it's necessarily the same one because I, I haven't gone into how the Nazis actually defined Aryan, but I've always just kind of figured it like that's what they would be talking yeah, about. Yeah, but it's not, not that like Aryan... the fifth generation of humans. You know, it would more so be like the blonde-eyed, blue-haired, like perfect. Yeah, like I know what, what Aryan means, but this isn't a real race. And they're saying that these Wagers are descendants of Aryans and they're not, right? Yeah, that, that's basically okay. like, they, yeah, they can't be. <laughs> okay, I'm just putting it out there because this is where the racism comes in. Because HPB did the same thing. There's a lot of racism in the history that she drew from. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to d put that out there. Oh, and by the way, I keep saying Nikal records. He called the race from Mu Nikal and their language 
language Nicole, and that's okay. the one that three other people in the world could speak at the time. Or uh, oh. read, not speak. Yeah. Okay. Nicole records found by Churchward in one of the Tibetan monasteries. And again, this is where it says Tibetan when it might have been India, who knows. Tell how the Nikals 70,000 years ago had brought to the Weiger capital cities copies of the sacred inspired writings of the motherland. Churchward was told by his Rishi that when the Great Flood swept up over Eastern and Northeastern Asia, it destroyed the Weiger capital city, drowning all of the inhabitants and buried a great library, which had been brought there by the Nikals from the motherland. Many years afterwards, the Nikals in the West, whom the flood had not reached, went to these ruins and dug up the tablets and carried them to the temple in the West. There they remained until the mountains were raised and the temple was destroyed, once more burying the records. Many, many years afterwards, the descendants of those Nikals, who had survived the raising of the mountains, went and dug them out again and brought them to the temple where they are now deposited. Churchward states that neither his monastery nor the tablets are unknown and that they are well known to Oriental scholars and that to his own personal knowledge, five Europeans, three Englishmen and two Russians had visited this monastery. He also quotes his Rishi as stating that the Nikal library deposited in the secret archives of the temple located at Iodia was never discovered by those who sacked the city and presumably remains there and under the ruins intact. That's his history of Mu and the Weiger Empire. They all seem to have a fairly lost civilization, so to say, uh, lost continents, have a similar kind of history, don't they? They sure do. And in fact, it comes up on bad archaeology and fake archaeology (laughs) Wikipedias, which apparently are things which I was able to read. (laughs) And also, I just wanted to bring this up now. This is from the previous article I was talking about, the Mexico Unexplained one, but it makes more sense to say it here. We would see the histories of ancient Mexico created by Augustus Laplongeon develop into something altogether different after his papers and notes were passed to a man named James Churchward by the recently widowed Alice Laplongeon in 1911. Churchward repackaged his stories and elaborated on them in his books. And it's quite interesting that he claims to have visited this high priest in India when he was a like young man but doesn't write a book until he's 75 but is only 15 years after he talked to Alice Laplongeon about the stories that the family had from that <laughs> yes, of course the timing makes perfect sense yeah <laughs> only natural the next steps there yeah okay so this next part that i gotta bring up it's the fake archaeology site so it's talking about a few of the traps that he seems to fall into about lost continents the first one is called hyperdiffusion. chelsea have you ever heard this term no okay but it's going to make sense what it is like right off the bat Hyperdiffusion is the idea that all major cultural innovations and societies derive from one major superior ancient civilization. It's just people see that people on opposite sides of the world are doing something somewhat similar. They're like, oh yeah, so that must mean that it all comes from one thing. Usually if an individual believes in hyperdiffusion, they do not acknowledge that two civilizations could evolve independently of each other and have similar aspects of cultures. Hyperdiffusion is the basis of Churchward's Mu. He claimed that Mu diffused into all ancient civilizations that he believed to be perfect. Ancient Maya, ancient Egypt, Egypt, ancient Greece. These civilizations also gained all of their technology and structures from Mu. Churchward suggests that all similarities between ancient societies and cultures originate from Mu. The mentality towards the development of ancient societies is seen throughout all of his works, especially, quote, the lost continent of Mu, end quote, his first book and most popular book about Mu. Within this book, he explains in detail about how people of Mu traveled to other civilizations to survive a major catastrophe and tried to teach ancient 
ancient civilizations what they knew. However, Churchward claims that these civilizations were of lesser quality than those from Mu, so although they had information from Mu, none were successful in it as superior. That makes sense. The other thing that seems to plague Lost Continent investigators, hypothesizer, archaeologists, I don't know the correct word for them, is <laughs> ethnocentrism. Yes. Ethnocentrism is the belief that all other countries or peoples are lesser to one civilization or group. Often in Lost Civilization theories, it is believed that the Lost Civilization is superior to all people and their descendants are currently the most perfect and superior societies and cultures. The idea is seen deeply in James Churchward's writings about Mu. Churchward's main idea mm -hmm. of Mu was that it was the perfect human civilization. His theory was that civilization had many races, but the race that was white was the most attractive and intelligent, dominating over the other races. In The Lost Continent of Mu, Churchward writes, quote, the dominant race in the land of Mu was a white race, exceedingly handsome. Besides this white race, there were other races, people with yellow, brown, or black skins. Vase, however, did not dominate. End quote. Churchward believed that these white dominant individuals then spread around the world and founded all the civilizations that people of today view to be exceedingly intelligent. Ancient Egypt, ancient Maya, and ancient Greece. Just avoiding the fact that when the Spaniards got to the New World, there were no white people there. They were short, very dark-skinned individuals. We've seen this on also every single one of our lost continent. It is not unique done. to Mu. It actually just seems to be the standard rule, not an outlier. It is. That's a weird thing that they all have in common, actually. Well, to be fair, the people that actually are ignorant enough to hypothesize an ancient continent also are ignorant enough to think they're just better than other people. That's I true. Think. That's it's just, true. it's a very easy way to explain it away. That's very true. And it true. couldn't be else it had to be white people because we're just the smartest and best but even when we looked at what was that other lost continent we did and it was was it briefly moo because there was an asian there um, it's lemuria and lemuria lemuria has a weird relationship with moo it sometimes is considered moo but it depends on who you're talking to whether or not they're the same continent but particularly because if you take lemuria just as what it is it is proposed as a land bridge between Madagascar and India because there's the only ago. places with lemurs. It yeah. was. I went and listened to it again. It's season one. Season one. That was a while ago. It had multiple origin stories, I believe. And there is an Asian culture that believed that they were the origins. The teamers. But it still went back to them believing that they are superior and they were the original. And it's still taught in the yes. island's education system in Indonesia. And making it, them superior it, yeah. because they were the yeah. first ones to originally be on Lemuria and therefore had all the knowledge. So they, and it was still taught. So it's still the same kind of concept. I mean, not white, but still we're the superior race because we came from this much older civilization and therefore it's everyone in the yeah. lost civilizations that has this viewpoint. But yeah, it, it just seems, it's weird that it just yeah. ends up being something that comes up. And I, I think it might actually have something to do with the ignorance of the idea that you know more than others and found this lost continent. Yeah, that's super strange. Okay, okay. So yeah, those are two of the features that he seems to have. And I should say, Churchward was never a educated archeologist. He was an engineer by trade. He had many patents. And that's where all his money came from. So I almost, I don't know if he maybe falls into the area of Dunning-Kruger effect, which is you're at a point in your knowledge where you don't actually know enough to know how much you don't know. So you actually <laughs> think you're good at something. 
you, everybody knows somebody in their life like who you could that. say, oh yeah, Dunning-Kruger yeah. effect applies. No kidding. I never knew that that was a thing, but yes, now that you mention it. And then Bad Archaeology had a little bit of a write-up on it. There's a Wikipedia subset called Bad Archaeology, and there is a write-up on Moo and specifically about church words, so I just wanted to give their two cents on it. There is no evidence that the Nikal ever existed outside of church words over fertile imagination. Every reference to them links back to church word. No one knows where or when they lived, and they left absolutely no evidence of their existence outside of the tablets Churchward claimed to have deciphered. Moreover, there's no evidence that the tablets existed, either. Despite a recent claim on his great-grandson's website that they had been relocated in a tunnel system beneath the Sri Enkembranatha Temple and Kanchapuram by one Thomas Ritter. As soon as we look for confirmation of just about any of Churchward's assertions, we fail to find any and the real and the only reasonable conclusion to draw is that Churchward invented almost everything in his books. In other words, he was a fraud whose works owe more to fantasy than to scholarship. Nevertheless, Mu has entered the fringe literature where authors are rarely fussy about checking their sources for confirmation. Yeah, that's the weird part of it. I think this is a good point to start talking about Jack Churchward. He is the great-grandson of James Churchward. He runs a website, and Chelsea ready to type this in, my-moo.com. You better be damn well ready. <laughs> Sorry, do you want to guess at what the website looks like? Before I say that guess, can I just say back to your last point about what the hell was it? People not fact-checking stuff? That really reminds me of the Philadelphia experiment. There's a lot of things that are it should remind us of in a lot of things that we talk about. But when it comes to like Moo and Atlantis and Lemuria and all these lost continents when you hear about it you think about like mystical and like all this like new age yeah new age stuff heightened spirituality yeah spirituality thank you you think of all that but when you actually go in and do the research behind it, it's coming from all these places of superior, like I'm better than you and racism. And it's like all this messed up stuff where it's so associated with new age things and everything that I just listed. So it's super weird that it has such a, and it, and it's, it's simply that people not fact checking the stuff in which they're using and talking about in such a new age fashion. That's all I wanted to say on that so i'm about to go to my.moo.com no my-moo.com yeah uh, my- chelsea i want you to give me your estimation of what this web page looks like okay i feel like it's gonna be it's gonna look like it's from the 90s early 90s is okay. it gonna have a counter of how many people have entered the website it's gonna have banners a lot of banners do you think there's gonna be advertisements yes many okay click on that thing okay Oh, yeah. This is, oh, yeah. It is is, straight out of the 90s. Banners everywhere. This is every website we go to now. But no advertisements. No advertisements. No no banners. There's there's one banner. I just want to draw your attention to the top right of the page. Yes. That is Jack Churchward. Is that a nice earring that he's wearing? I believe that is a headphone piece, but I don't know for sure. I gotta say, this can't be a headshot can it no i it's not it, it looks like he photoshopped it like he edited the yeah. photo down to just someone that someone said hey 
look over here. And he gave a stance like, I'm going to put my glasses down like I know what I'm talking about. And it looks like he, yeah, that that's about it, I have to say on that. But yeah. Just let me pull my glasses down and look over them for a second while you take that picture. So he seems to have made a living now in his life. Like what he does is he does talking points on his great-grandfather's work. Okay. Good he also him. does have a podcast if you're ever looking for it, My Dash Moo. Just search it in all the podcast things. It will come up. Probably won't. He hasn't posted since 2016. So, and <laughs> honestly, half of his episodes are like seven minutes long. So, like, what? you can actually listen to them pretty quick. Yeah. Except okay, that I mean, professor who came on that episode's that, an hour long. That's um, an interesting change. And then hilarious enough, one of the presentations that he was asked to give, he put on there. And at the end of it, one woman just wants him to give her the gist of the book. <laughs> She's like, come on, sell me, the, sell the book to me. And she just wants to know what's in the book. She's not going to actually buy it. It's a really <laughs> awkward altercation. I might include it right here. I just want to know more about Moo. I thought you were going to talk about Moo and what he discovered and, and could give us a picture of it. I thought I provided a map, but... No, Moo. I didn't. I, I, I want to know... About Moo, not about the book. I want to know about Moo. What was it like? Who lived there? Uh, how did it get started? This kind of thing is more what I, I, because I thought if you rewrote what was written, that you would be able to entice us to then want to read the book because she started telling us some of the things that he knew about Moo. That's what I was. That's what I'm asking. Okay, um, there were 64 million people. It was a lush land. Uh, according to James, he believed that it was, he, that he believes it was the Garden of Eden, that that's where people were created. <laughs> I want more. <laughs> uh, it's in the book. Um, <laughs> um, there's the colonial empires and the evidence spread throughout the world that James said that he found. Uh, can only go with. There's a lot of material in that book. It's a 350-page book. <laughs> But yeah, that's what he's up to. And whenever he brings a guest on, they seem to really refute the fact that his great grandpa didn't actually have any hidden information and that this is all just lies. But when he's just speaking on his own, he seems to believe in his great grandfather, but I, he could refute that. I haven't listened to everything he said. Okay. I did just want to bring that up because what is an episode of ours if not referencing back to a website that looks like it was made in the 90s and never updated? Hold on. I have to highlight everything. <laughs> As I do on websites. Oh, you you need to see now. <laughs> okay, there's nothing hidden on this one. There's no sex chats for first. us to accidentally yeah. click on. You heard it here first. MyMoo.com is clean. Yeah, so that that's just what I wanted to bring up on Jack's church word. If you're hearing anybody like present talk about Moo, it's either him or somebody who's just talking about like ancient people. Nobody's really doing any more research on it anymore. Except we will talk about that in one second because I'm going to kind of lie like right after Is that. it us? Are we doing research on it? <laughs> Are no, and Chelsea, do you remember how we were talking about everybody likes to use lost continents to prove that they're like just the better race? Yeah, we were just talking about that before the podcast. This and guy named now. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk did this as well. He was the ruler of Turkey during the Armenian genocide. What? 
Yeah. Oh. Because the Weigers are also Turkish. So he's like, oh yeah, this proves that we are direct descendants of Mu, a lost continent, oh, and therefore yes. a superior race. Of course. He appointed Hassan Tassin as Turkish ambassador to Mexico in 1935 with the mission of researching the Mu theory and the links between Mayas and Turks, which was inferred from the supposed linking of Mayas and Turkic Weigers with Mu. After he sent his seventh report, which referenced Churchward's books, Ataturk brought them to Turkey and had them translated into Turkey. Turkish. The rest of the reports were about Mayan culture and language. Tassin found many words that were common with Turkish via pseudoscientific word comparisons. One of those words was the word tepik, which means hill in Mayan and sounds very similar to the word tepa in Turkish, which also means hill. No. Of course, coincidental similarities don't happen in languages, and this means Turkish was the source of every language in the world. Yeah, clearly. After this exploration, Ataturk gave Tassin the surname Maya Tepic. So his name what? before was yeah. Hassan Hatashid, and he said, no, your name now is Hassan Maya Tepic, because oh, you know so much stupid. about the Maya. <laughs> But yeah, horrible human being. He's likely the one who brought about the Armenian genocide, which, hey, we do genocide episodes. Maybe we talk about it in the future. Yeah, maybe. Because, you know, we got to keep this grounded. Yeah, those are podcasts. You guys can't be too happy. <laughs> so that's it, right? That's all that Moo was and ever will be. Well, there is, of course, this okay. one thing. <laughs> the sea. Off of Yonaguni is a popular diving location in the winter months in Japan because of this population of hammerhead sharks. But in 1986, while looking for a good place to observe sharks, Kihachiro Aratake, a director of Yonaguni Cho Tourism Association, noticed some singular seabed formations resembling architectural structures. Shortly thereafter, a group of scientists directed by Masaki Kimura of the University of Ryukyu visited the formations. The formations has since become a relative popular attraction for divers despite strong currents. And in 1997, Japanese industrialist Yasuo Watanabe sponsored an informal expedition including pseudo-archaeology writers John Anthony West and Graham Hancock, geologist and fringe theorist Robert Schock, photographer Santa Faya, and a few support divers and instructors, and a film crew for Channel 4 and Discovery Channel. Another notable visitor was freediver Jacques Mayol, who wrote a book about this. Basically, people believe that they found a pyramid off the coast of Japan. Yes. And people believe that this is lost remnants of the continent of Mu. Some people. I'm assuming Some not people. people. Not, not, it is not the normal view of what's going on. Yeah. Geologist Robert Schock, who was brought up earlier, believes that it is most likely natural. Schock observed the sandstone that make up the Anaguni formation to contain numerous well-defined parallel bedding planes, along which the layers easily separate. The rocks of this group are also crisscrossed by numerous sets of parallel vertically oriented joints in the rocks. These joints are natural parallel fractures by which the rectangular formation seen in the area likely formed. Yonaguni lies in an earthquake-prone region. Such earthquakes tend to fracture the rocks in a regular manner. He also observed that there are similar formations in the northeast coast of Yonaguni. John Anthony West visited the formation with shock and agreed that it was natural formation and that Kimura had not looked carefully enough at the natural processes at work. Shock also believes that the drawings identified by Kimura are natural scratches on the rocks and suggests that the walls are simply natural horizontal platforms which fell into a vertical position when rocks below them eroded and the alleged roads are simply channels in the rock. And sorry, 
story. I cut a lot of this article out, but basically the guy who was first diving there said he saw scribings on the walls that looked like people put them there and rose on the ground. Mm-hmm. That doesn't stop pseudo-archaeologists from claiming that it's an artificial structure. Komura first estimated that the formation must be at least 10,000 years old, dating it to a period when it would have been above water and therefore surmised that the site may be a remnant of the mythical lost continent of Mu. In a report given to the 21st Pacific Science Congress in 2007, he revised his estimates and dated it to 2,000 to 3,000 years ago because the sea level then was close to current levels. He suggested that after construction, tectonic activity caused it to be submerged below sea levels. So it was at land level and then it fell into the sea. Yes, Archaeologist Richard J. Pearson believes this to be unlikely. Kimura believes he can identify a pyramid, castles, roads, monuments, and a stadium. He further stated that he believes that the structure is to be remnants of Yamatai culture. Supporters of artificial origins such as Grant Hancock also argue that while many of the features seen at Yonaguni are also seen in natural sandstorm formations throughout the world, the concentration of so many peculiar formations in such a small area is highly unlikely. They also point to the relative absence of loose blocks on the flat areas of the formation, which would be expected if they were formed solely by natural erosion and fracturing. Robert Schock, who believes the formation was formed geologically, has noted that the rocks are swept with strong currents. So that's where I want to end off. There might be a pyramid at the bottom of the ocean near Japan that people claim is the lost remnants of Mu, but it's likely just a natural formation. But people are still, like, even today, people are saying, oh yeah, this is still remembered as a place, despite the fact that, like, these two people who are mainly known for creating Mu are crazy people. Yeah, as are with most lost civilizations, as we have found out. And maybe in the future we will find one that is not made up by crazy people. And it's funny because like there are actually lost continents that are agreed to by modern geologists. Right. We've covered some, right? Yeah. Zealand. Zealand is a real lost continent. New Zealand is the remnants of it. But that doesn't stop people from guessing about these ones. Uh, The Pacific Ocean makes a lot of sense for where you'd want to find one because it's so huge. Yeah. And dotted with islands. And in fact, a lot of people link Nan Madal to Mu. That was the other one. It doesn't make any sense, though, in my mind. They're saying, oh, yeah, Nan Madal must have been above land when it was built. But that doesn't make any sense because it'd be atop of a freaking giant mountain. So it'd be even harder to build at the top of a mountain. But there is Machu Picchu. (laughs) There is, but it's not that high compared to where Nan Madal would be. Really? Okay, so that yeah. doesn't make sense. But yeah, that's the episode. That was another, you know, look at these crazy people that made talk about these continents. Yeah. Just blatantly made shit up. And more episodes than I would like end up being like, wow, this is really ethnocentric bordering on racism. It is. And it's just like I said earlier, it's like, wow, this is, you're taking something that people think is such a spiritual thing when you start hearing about it and you go, wow, like Atlantis and Moo, it's so new agey. And then you actually look into it and you're like, wow, it's not really new agey at all. It's just people that made up some real racist things. And and in fact, that is really interesting you bring that up because I have been hearing in the last probably, I don't know if it's six months or closer to a year or two years, but a lot of new agey people falling very much so into an anti-vax fascist like viewpoint of the world. And I'm wondering if like the critical thinking process on that side of it is similar. It could be. It could be. However, I've been into like new agey things and it maybe it is. You just you just want to believe without looking into it. Whereas if these people did look 
look into these things that are associated with what is new age, then they would yeah. quickly find out. And I mean, I never looked into it until I had to do a podcast on it because it didn't interest me that much. I just thought, oh, like yeah. people who believe in this must just be higher thinking than other people because it was a lost civilization. But if you even look in a little bit into it, if you even listen to a podcast about it, it becomes quite evident is not what you think it might be because you just kind of made it up on in your head what it is well and, and it's so hard to just say like you can't just prove yeah you're lying like that's it when it's like no i found tablets that nobody else can see because i don't have them <laughs> but i translated them from a language that nobody else knows but this one guy you can't know his name yeah and it turns out that the guy who looked into it and like started the whole thing he was reincarnated from like royalty in mexico in the mayans and it's just a pretty messed up psych and you bring up a good point it maybe it is the critical thinking that's not there because yeah there was a significant portion of the population uh, of well, the group of people who are in the new age and then ended yeah. up voting for trump in the last election and i mean i feel like i'm one of those people but when you really think about it because i believe in like new agey kind of things but i wouldn't say i necessarily believe in this after we've looked into it and like other things yeah but every time you look so into your <laughs> things for this podcast man do they i know suck? i'm always love disappointed but i don't want to be grouped in with that so i feel like i want to protect them but at the same time i don't know what to think my head but hey maybe we'll know in the future what to tell you about that it seems like an issue we'll probably be able to tackle because after all <laughs> we are journey to the fringe i am taylor here with chelsea thank you all for listening and we will see you next week can I just read you this popular Google search if I Google noodling deaths per year? Yes. Noodling snapping turtle. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so painful. <laughs> so painful. Hi. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>